and welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we are going to be looking at the case of Stanford International Bank Limited and HSBC Bank PLC. The citation for this case is 2022 UKSC 34. The appellant in this case, Stanford International Bank, was owned and controlled by Alan Stanford, the famous financier and fraudster who was involved in one of the biggest Ponzi schemes of all time and is currently serving a 110-year prison sentence. In the UK, he is perhaps best known for his involvement with cricket and, in particular, for funding the Stanford 2020 Cricket Tournament. Back in 2008, the England team lost a match in the West Indies to the Stanford Superstars by 10 wickets. Anyway, this case is not about cricket, so that's enough of that tangent. Instead, this case is about the bank and the Ponzi scheme run through it. Withdrawals by customers and payments that were made when investments supposedly matured were actually being made from capital invested by other customers. As with all Ponzi schemes, they eventually run out of money. And in 2008, a lot of customers started making withdrawals out of fear the bank would become insolvent. Stanford International Bank itself had four accounts with HSBC, the other party in these proceedings, and in August 2008, Stanford authorised payments from the accounts totalling £116 million that were used to pay customers. It was only in February 2009 that the accounts were eventually frozen by HSBC. The argument in this case from Stanford International Bank is that HSBC was on notice that the instructions to make those payments in 2008 may have been part of a fraud. As such, HSBC were allegedly under a duty of care, known in legal circles as the Quince Care Duty, and should have refused to make the payments. HSBC applied to strike out this argument, and they were successful before the Court of Appeal, so Stanford International Bank now appeals to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick things up. By the time the question got to the Supreme Court, the proceedings were focused on one question in particular. Assuming that HSBC did owe this quince care duty, and even assuming that there was a breach of that duty, did the breach actually give rise to any recoverable losses that were recoverable by Stanford? That might seem an odd question to ask because of all the money that went up in smoke because of the Ponzi scheme, but as we will see, there is an important difference between the money lost by the bank and the money lost by creditors. To get us started, the justices distinguished between the first set of customers who escaped without any loss because they withdrew their funds before the bank collapsed and received money from the disputed £116 million payout and the second set of customers who are at risk of losing all their money because they did not withdraw their money before the collapse. It was decided that the disputed payments that relieved Stanford Bank of its liability to the first set of customers did not constitute a monetary loss. Assuming that HSBC had not authorised the payments, then the bank might have had an extra £116 million, but it also would not have discharged any of the debts owed to the first set of customers either, and so both sets would have had a claim to a dividend in the insolvency. That extra money, alongside the extra claims, 
might have meant that all of the customers would have recovered 12% of their deposits instead of the first set getting 100% and the second set getting only 5%. However, that doesn't change the total amount of debt that the company would have extinguished overall, and so there is no actual loss here. The fact that this is not exactly fair is something that the Supreme Court acknowledged, but that is ultimately a question of policy within the insolvency regime. While on this subject, the justices noted that there might be situations where a director breaches their statutory duty by paying off certain debts, and can then be required to repay the company. But that does not extend to a more general principle, such that a person who is negligent can be held liable even when there is no monetary loss. Lord Leggett gave a concurring judgment where he used the principle of a separate corporate personality to point out that the interests of a company are legally distinct from those who have an economic interest in the company. As such, the losses are different as well, even if there is correlation between the two. Stanford International Bank therefore lost the case, but the result was not exactly fair. One set of customers walks away as if nothing happened, and another set lose almost all of their money. With that in mind, we should ask if it is really correct to say that there has been no monetary loss, and if there is anything that the law can do to help the victims of this Ponzi scheme. Lord Sales thinks there is, and explains his reasoning in the dissenting judgment to this case. At all the relevant times, Stanford International Bank was hopelessly insolvent, and so it was impossible for them to legally pay the first set of customers the face value of the debts owed to them. Indeed, if the bank had not been deceived by Alan Stanford, then it would not have made the payments in the first place. Those excess payments to the first set of customers depleted the assets of Stanford International Bank and therefore represent a loss. The corporate personality is not a mere abstraction and must be used to protect the general creditors as a whole. When that doesn't happen, the incorrect diversion of funds is a loss. This then links into the sub-issue that we discussed as well. Once a company is hopelessly insolvent, its interests are fully aligned with the interests of creditors. If money is used to discharge the debt of some creditors, but this does damage to the interests of the creditors as a general body, then this also harms the interests of the company too, and loss ought to be recoverable. For me, this explanation is not only more fair, but also seems to align better with the general policy goals of insolvency law, and makes more logical sense too. The argument from the majority is not wrong in terms of the law per se, but the interpretation that they offer leaves a lot to be desired when thinking about the more general context, and the concerns that they express about maintaining a clear distinction between the loss of the creditors versus the loss of the company does not really hold water when the rubber hits the road. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Quick reminder before we go that if you would like to support the podcast and help to keep it ad-free, then you can subscribe to my newsletter and earn yourself some nice perks including more content from me each week and a free ebook on how to answer essay questions on a law degree. This week in the newsletter we learnt more about the Northern Ireland Legacy Bill and considered the challenges facing the new chair of the Judicial Appointments Commission. If that sounds like something you're interested in then check out the link in the description to this podcast episode. Anyway, I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!